morning. I had a difficult night last night. Many of you know I'm from Michigan, so I was rooting hard for Michigan State and Texas Tech just took it to us, right? So, but you know, life is full of difficulty, so that's a really weird transition, but that's what I'm talking about this morning. Life is full of difficulty, uh, and there's way more difficulty in life than there is about being disappointed that your basketball team lost, right? We experience difficulty all throughout our life. Um, we experience difficulty sometimes because we, we do stupid stuff. We make bad decisions, right? We cheat and we get caught and so we fail a class or we, uh, we don't study and we fail and we, don't, we have negative consequences. We overeat and so we get a tummy ache. You know, I have kids, so there you go. We overeat and we get sick. Um, we overspend and we don't save enough money and we don't have enough money to spend, pay our bills. We get... We experience difficulty all the time because we make stupid decisions, right? But that's not what I'm talking to you about this morning. Sometimes we experience difficulty because this world is broken. Uh, we have a close family connection. Sarah's cousin, uh, her husband just recently got diagnosed with cancer. He's a great guy. He's a truck driver. And this isn't the kind of cancer that's slow. It's the kind of cancer that he found out. He's only like early 40s with just had a fifth kid and he, he may or may not make it, right? That's the kind of cancer that is. And so this isn't that kind of difficulty that I'm talking to you about this morning. Sometimes life just hits us hard and we didn't do anything to deserve it. But there is a third type of difficulty, and that's what I actually want to talk to you about this morning. Um, not about the difficulty that we get ourselves in because we are stupid, not, because of the, not the difficulty that we find ourselves in because this world is just conflicting and coexisting with brokenness all around us. And sometimes bad stuff happens to good people and good stuff happens to bad people. Those are both important topics and I've talked about them many times in the past and I'm sure I will talk about them many, 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 many times in the future. But today or this morning, what I want to talk to you about is the kind of difficulty that we choose the kind of difficulty that we choose, and really the kind of difficulty that we should choose. Because sometimes in life we experience difficulty because we choose to do the right thing. Sometimes we experience difficulty in life because we choose to do the right thing. Sometimes it might look like this, staying in a job when you hate that job so much, right? Have you ever been in a place like that? And yet you put your resume out and you can't find anything else and you just got to stick that thing out because you do, right? And you're hoping it'll change in the future, but you got to stick it out. Sometimes difficulty comes because you know you have to have a hard conversation with someone, right? And you know you should have this conversation. You know it should happen, but you know if you do, you're not sure what's going to happen on the other end. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with an overbearing family member, a parent, where you just need some boundaries to be put in place. Maybe it's a spouse. And you know, so often in life, especially in these close family relationships, we have, we have so much invested or at stake when it comes to those relationships with our family, don't we? And we sometimes would rather keep an equilibrium that is unhealthy, but yet there's some form of relationship than risk upsetting that dysfunctional balance for the hope of something better, right? But sometimes we need to have a hard conversation because if we don't have that hard conversation, we are going to subsist in a level that is not God's will, not healthy for us. Sometimes... 
there are roads of difficulty that we never expected, you know, all the time, every so often my wife will tell me, you know, I never, ex- I never thought my life would look like this. And because I don't have the curse of dreaming all that often, my dreams aren't broken very often, right? But my wife has had all kinds of dreams, which is a beautiful thing. It may not be the way I am, but it is a beautiful thing. But have you ever had a time in your life where you had all these hopes, dreams, and desires And there comes a place in your life where it starts to look less and less likely with every day it passes that those hopes, dreams, and desires will be fulfilled. Do you understand? Now, my wife has so many hopes, dreams, and desires that the mathematical equation of those being all fulfilled is impossible. So I remind her of that every so often. But I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes... Doing what is right brings incredible difficulty. Um, I knew someone once who, when her her mom got older, she had to stay home during her empty nest years and take care of her aging mother, losing her freedom just at the time when she thought she was supposed to get it. Yeah? Sometimes doing what is right creates incredible difficulty. So this morning, what I really want to talk to you about is this question. I, I, I want us to take some time to develop and, and consider it. And as I speak, I, I pray that the Spirit of God might impress on your life your own life circumstances and your own areas where you need to develop, where you need to grow, where you need to change. But the question that we're looking at this morning is, how should I respond when I, knew, when I know that doing what is right will cause me difficulty? How should I respond, or we could say it this way, how should I respond when I know that doing God's will will be hard? That doing God's will will be hard. This morning, we find ourselves, as Kathy mentioned, we find ourselves in the last section of the book of Acts. It's, it's a, the way I've broken it up is a huge section. We're looking at really eight chapters today, and that doesn't mean we're going to go long. It just means... The, the stories, the, the content that we're looking at takes place over Acts chapter 21 through Acts chapter 28. It's the conclusion of this 10-week series on the book of Acts in which we're looking at, uh, we're looking at how the gospel, the good news of what Jesus, who he is and what he did, how it transformed both the lives of those who heard and those who, uh, who proclaimed the good news, you know. Because those of us who preach about Jesus need to be transformed and changed by Jesus in the same way that those who hear about Jesus need to be transformed. So it is a sto- it's, a, it's a sermon series about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms the lives of those who proclaim and those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We've seen all kinds of things happen. The books of, book of Acts begins just 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. And through, we are, through this content that we're tracing, we're now about 25 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Peter has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul has taken it to the Gentiles. The gospel has moved throughout Asia. It has moved into Europe. It is moving all over the world. That just 20, 20 years earlier, you know, this man, Jesus, who was fully God, fully man, came to earth, died for everyone's sins, rose from the dead, and now these men and women are going throughout the known world and are proclaiming that everything has changed because Jesus has died and Jesus has risen. And now we find ourselves 
about 25 to 30 years later after that date, Paul's gone on a couple mission trips that we've looked at over the past couple weeks. He's gone through three. And now, at the conclusion of one of his mission trips, and we, we just foreshadowed this very briefly last week, he goes to the elders at Ephesus and he tells, him that, he tells them this, I must go to Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. I must go to Jerusalem. I know that the Spirit of God is leading me there, and I know that the Spirit of God is telling me that when I go there, it will be really, really, really hard. Right? We're told earlier in this part of the book, we, I won't show you the exact verse, but we're told earlier that in another trip when Paul was in Jerusalem, that the Spirit of God told him to leave Jerusalem, right? Leave Jerusalem because it's too dangerous for you here. And so Paul left about 15, 20 years later, earlier in his life. But now, 20 years later, the Spirit of God comes to him again and says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and when you go, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. And Paul says, I don't know exactly how hard it's going to be. I know I'm going to be in prison, and I know I'm going to suffer physical hardship, but I don't know exactly what's in it for me, but I'm going to go anyway. Now, the problem here is, and I, sometimes I'm glad life isn't quite like this for us, right? If I were to be able to say, and I was to sit and down with one of you one and one and say, the Spirit of God has told me your life is going to really suck and it's going to be hard, that would not be a really pleasant, you know, conversation. But it kind of stinks to know that ahead of time. Does that make sense? And yet, in a more global or just overarching way, the Bible tells us all throughout it, that following Jesus will be difficult. Following Jesus will be difficult. I think sometimes we, even in the Christian world, and maybe it's just because humanity in general has two ultimate aims almost all the time, to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure, right? To avoid pain and to pursue pleasure. And yet, for those who follow Jesus, we are told it will be difficult. And Paul is told by the Spirit of God, nonetheless, I'm not sure how this was communicated. Did he hear an audible voice? Was it a strong impression on his inner spirit? Both are possible. The Spirit of God tells him, you will suffer. And the Spirit of God says, you should go. We get so in, such into a mindset of avoiding pain that we forget that pain sometimes is a part of the reality of living in this world. Why is this? Is it because God wants us to suffer? That would be the easy conclusion, but it is not true. God does not want us to suffer. It is not as if God is some kind of sadist up above where he has got like uh, the puppets down below. And he said, I think I'd like to put this one through a really hard time. So I'll poke a little needle in him and he'll, go, he'll feel pain. Why do we suffer in this world? We suffer in this world because this world is conflicting and coexisting with evil and goodness. And one day, God will separate those realities, and there will be no more suffering, as Revelation, as we looked at last spring, says. But until that time, because the Christian exists in a world that conflicts and coexists with evil and goodness, there will be both incredible capacity for joy and for beauty and for goodness, and there will be moments where those who look at the light will hate the light. Just as Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. For there are some who love the darkness. I'm speaking a little bit metaphorically right now, but you'll be able to understand what Jesus says. 
There are some who love the darkness and who hate the light and who will make it miserable for people who follow the light. And so Paul is told beforehand, you will suffer. I want you to see this part of it, uh, the part of God's plan for Paul bringing the good news or the light of the gospel to the world was always a plan of suffering. Not suffering without a purpose, but suffering with a purpose. If you turn a few pages back to Acts chapter 9, I'll show you exactly what I mean. It's found in page, uh, Acts chapter 9, page 891, and it's verses 16 and 17. Acts chapter 9. We'll start in 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. And he's saying to Ananias, go and talk to Paul. For this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to their kings, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The suffering that Paul is going to go through is a suffering with a purpose. And the purpose is, is that the good news of Jesus will go out and it will be heard. The good news of Jesus will be heard. But the light and the darkness are at a war. For the darkness hates the light. And so Paul goes, and he suffers innumerably. (laughs) He suffers all the time. If you read the end of 2 Corinthians, it's in chapter 12, I believe. Paul talks about all the ways that he suffers during his time. You know, and it's one of those passages that you almost have to read it to believe it, right? Shipwrecked and beaten. He was beaten almost to death, uh, I think, three or four times. We looked at one time, remember, when he was in, I think it was Derby. He is stoned to death to the point where they think he is dead, and they leave him there thinking he is dead, and he gets up and he walks away. The man went through incredible suffering, but not suffering without a purpose, not suffering because he was a sadist and he just likes to burn his hand for no good reason, Right? suffering so that the good news of Jesus might be heard. Now, Paul had this benefit, right? He knew that he would suffer, but he also knew it was God's will. For, for God spoke to him and said, you're going to go and you're going to do this. And I was thinking about it in life, how sometimes God's will is obvious to us, isn't it? And sometimes God's will is not so obvious. Isn't this the case? I think in some instances, you know, if your boss comes to you and says, you know, uh, we did something illegal, but you just need to hush this up, it's kind of obvious what you need to do, right? You don't lie about something illegal. You, you own and you fess up for what you've done. Uh, if, you're, if you're caught between the circumstances, I can cheat on my taxes and lie about it, or I cannot. And if I lie, I spend less money in taxes, pay less in taxes. And if I tell the truth, I pay more. It's kind of obvious what God's will is in that situation is, right? It's always God's will, for the most part, to tell the truth, right? We honor people with the truth. It's God's will to do so. And so there are some times when God's will is obvious, but there are some moments when God's will is not obvious, is it? There might, I think of it this way, when God's will is obvious is when there's a moral decision to be made, right? Should I sleep with my girlfriend Or should I not before marriage? The answer is no, because it doesn't honor her. It is wrong, right? There are times, however, when there are two seeming paths and God's will is not so obvious. What do we do? I've known so many people who become paralyzed by seeking God's will. 
And yet I think there are some times when God's will is not obvious, when we just go in the direction that we desire the most. As the reformer Martin Luther would say 500 years ago, do what is right and do what you want. Something like this. But there are other times in our life, and it's hard. We may not even be able to explain it to somebody else in the way we would like. When God's will is not obvious, but yet we have this deep-seated inclination or um, this deep-seated understanding of what we believe God wants us to do. And we just have to move in the direction of obedience, even if it means difficulty. Because difficulty is a part of the deal. Now, Paul was told that he is going to suffer, and he did. He went to Jerusalem, and I'll, I'll summarize this very briefly. He went to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, uh, James and the other elders of the church of Jerusalem receive him gladly. But they say to Paul, the, the emotional atmosphere in the city is not for you right now. There are many people who claim to follow Jesus, who really don't like you, who hate you, because you represent a threat to them about not you. They are saying that you say that to follow Jesus, you do not have to obey the law, and they are zealous for the law. And so James says, what I think you should do is go and worship God at the temple and be seen to be following the law so that you might dissipate some of this emotional angst. Well, that may seem like good advice as it goes, and Paul does actually take it. He goes down to the temple, he worships, and he purifies himself according to the law. We won't go into that, but it does not quell the emotional atmosphere. The the people from Jerusalem have been stirred up. There are old enemies of Paul that have traveled a long ways to come to Jerusalem, and they stir up a riot, and they take Paul outside of the Jerusalem, and they start to beat him to death. And as they are beating him, the Roman commander in Jerusalem hears of this, and he rushes with his, uh, you know, his soldiers, and they save Paul from, you know, from moments away from death, and they bring him back to the barracks, and the Roman commander says, what's going on? Why are these people trying to kill you? In fact, they even, he even says, are you a terrorist? Are you the Egyptian terrorist who killed all those men not long ago and who led a war band of 4,000? And Paul says, I'm no terrorist. I'm simply a Jew who grew up in Tarsus who believes that Jesus is the way of salvation. And it is for this that the Jews have tried to put me to death. The commander, having a hard time believing it, says, really, that's it? Really? And Paul says, let me speak to the crowd. And Paul speaks to the crowd and he tells his testimony and he says, it is Jesus who it has come. And it is because of Jesus that I have come to you. And they get angry and they want to kill him again. So the commander protects him and he finally takes him and he sends him to a man whose name was Festus. Festus was the ruler, the Roman ruler over this region. He goes before Festus and he says, I am innocent. And Festus is like, really? This is what they're upset with you about? Because you believe that Jesus is the one who rules and that he died and rose from the dead? Festus thinks to himself, I don't know if I believe it, but this doesn't seem like worth killing you over, right? Festus wants to release Paul, but the Jews hate Paul so deeply that he just keeps him in jail just to quell the riot, and he wants to do the Jews a favor. Paul languishes in prison for two years. Finally, Festus moves on, and his successor is a man named Felix. Felix brings him before him, and 
says, Paul, why are you on trial? And he says, it is because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus, that I stand before you and I am imprisoned. And Felix says, well, that doesn't make sense. But to do a favor to the Jews, he wants to send Paul to Jerusalem. He's now in Caesarea, Paul is, in prison. And he wants to send him to Jerusalem because the Jews have asked for him to hold trial there. But the Jews don't want Paul to stand trial again. The Jews want him to go on the road to Jerusalem and they're going to put a big war band out and they're going to kill him on the way. They're going to assassinate him. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I am a Roman citizen and I should be treated fairly, fairly. And I appeal to Caesar for the spirit of God who had appeared to Paul and said, you must go to Rome and take the gospel there. And so Felix holds him in prison for a little longer and says, you must go to, you must go to Rome and when it, I'm ready, I'll send you. Another one of uh, Felix's friends comes to visit and Felix tells him about this case, you know, over dinner, that he's got this, this uh, Jewish Roman citizen who's imprisoned and how much trouble it's caused him. And Agrippa, who understands, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, who understand Jewish customs, they ask to speak with Paul. And Paul explains to them in detail the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And Agrippa says, this man has done nothing wrong. And if it was not for the sake that he appealed to Caesar, you would be able to let him go, but you have to send him. Paul gets sent to Rome. He shipwrecks on the way. They survive. And he gets to Rome. And the gospel goes to the Romans He writes a couple more epistles there. He later then gets released from prison in Rome. He goes to Spain and he takes the gospel. This goes beyond Acts chapter 28. And then he eventually finds his way back in Rome in a pit, which you can visit today in Rome. And he writes his last epistle, 2 Timothy there, where he says, even now I am ready to die. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think it's verse 6. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. For I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, and I have no regrets. Isn't that a statement of joy, right? I have no regrets. No regrets. You see, Paul's solution for suffering was not to escape it, but to walk confidently towards danger in the knowledge that he was doing God's will, to walk confidently towards danger in the full knowledge that he is doing God's will. Have you ever avoided God's will and you know you should do something right and you don't do it and your life may seem fine, you know? I've had a few times in life where I've procrastinated on things, things I really should do. It was really laziness, if, I, if I'm so blunt. And I can remember, you know, I'm getting good sleep, I'm taking naps, I'm eating good food, I'm having a good time, and yet there's this, there's this deep-seated uneasiness in everything I'm doing because I've, I've not done what I'm supposed to do. I've put off a conversation I'm supposed to have. I've supposed to have. I've not... Uh, I've not gotten ready for something in the future that I needed to prepare for. I can't think of a specific incident, but there's this deep-seated, settled, unsettledness about this moment of peace. Does this make sense? There is 
a deep-seated satisfaction, however, on the other side of the will of God, isn't there? That when you know that you've done the will of God, you experience joy. It's hard to explain, but yet, in one of the most beautiful passages, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the author of Hebrews says something like this, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, do you remember this? Endured the cross and suffered the shame who for the joy that was set before him. It reminds me even, even though the word joy isn't used in 2 Timothy 4, it reminds me of the language of what Paul says near the end of his life. I am right now ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and I know the time of my death is near. The time of my end is near. But I have fought the good fight. I have run the race, and I have no regret. There is a confidence in the knowledge that you have done what is right, that you have done God's will. And so this morning, how should we respond or how should we respond when we know that doing what is right will cause difficulty for us, that doing God's will will create hardship? And I think the answer is fairly obvious. The answer is based off the life of Paul It's based off our experience. It's based off the language of all throughout Scripture that courageous obedience is required. Courageous obedience, even though you don't know how the matter will settle out, even though you don't know the outcome. Isn't it true? I just have a few more thoughts, and then we'll we'll celebrate communion together. Isn't it true that the outcome in life is never certain, right? We're faced with decisions, you know. There's decision A and there's decision B. But we're not like, we're not given like one of those books, like one of those novels. Remember, choose this or choose this. And you turn to the page and you get to read how it ends. And within like 30 seconds, you know. Well, maybe it takes some a little longer than that, right? Reading. It's not like that. The outcome is never certain. It's never certain at all. There's no promise that if you eat what is good, you won't get cancer, right? There's no promise that if you do study really hard that you're going to get into the college of your dreams. The outcome is never certain. Second thing I was thinking about, that it takes courageous, it takes courageous obedience because the outcome is never certain. It takes obe- courageous obedience because following God is difficult. Following Jesus is difficult. If the one that we worship Every Sunday morning, if his obedience resulted in his crucifixion, then it at least leads us to understand that sometimes following Jesus for us will be difficult. I'm not a sadist. I hope for very little difficulty in my life. Very little. And so far, I'm getting my wish overall, right? And yet, difficulty could be right around the corner. It doesn't matter if there is or isn't. It matters my resolve and how I respond when it comes. Following Jesus brings difficulty, but it takes courageous obedience as well because being in the will of God is the only route to joy. Being in the will of God is the only route to joy. And so as we move towards communion this morning and as we kind of reflect and consider and ponder 
our life decisions. And, you know, even as I'm talking, there's undoubtedly all kinds of things going on in your hearts and in your minds, decisions you've made in the past, things that you're proud of, things that you regret, decisions you have to make in the near future or the far future, conversations you'll have to have or you're putting off having. I ask you to reflect on the will of God. I ask you to pray that God's will might be revealed to you, that you might pray for wisdom. And I pray that you might have the courage to do what is right when you know it. For on the other side of this kind of courage is joy. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you give us the wisdom to know what is right and the courage to do it? Amen. This morning, as we transition to communion, we celebrate the one who died and rose from the dead so that we might have eternal life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, we want to invite all of those who have to come forward with us in just a moment as we celebrate again what Jesus has done for us and as we take the bread and the grape juice, which symbolize his broken body and his shed blood. If you're unsure about what this ritual means or if you're uncomfortable taking communion, nobody's watching. Just stay seated and nobody's going to say anything to you. If they do, just let me know and we'll talk to that person. You know, I'll give them bad looks for you. But communion is something we do. It's such an important part of worship. It's something we do to nourish our hearts, to remember what God has done, to fill our hearts with thanksgiving and gratefulness, and to hope and anticipate that God, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, will come again, and he will separate the realities of light and darkness, good and evil. And until that day, we celebrate, and we remember, and we hope. And so at this time, would you please come? Just come right forward to the table at your section and return to your seat. And in a moment, I'll lead us in partaking together.